everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Myo Minds podcast. As always, I am your host, George, and today I am here with PhD student Louisa Vargas. Louisa, how are you? I'm good, thank you, George. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, we were just talking before we hit the record button about how hot it is. It's during it's that for <laughs> yeah for people listening. It's during that little stint that we all had. We all we all complained about the heat, and um, I feel like that happens every year in England, but. I'm very sweaty. I don't know if you can hear the sweat through the microphone, but it's definitely there. So, Louisa, uh, I'm here today because I read a paper of yours and I thought it was, I can't even explain how interesting I thought the idea was. Um, it's something I am very passionate about and something I, I read into a lot. And I read your paper, I think I've read it like three times now. Um, I really enjoyed it, found it so interesting, and I wanted to kind of get you on to talk about it. Um, so I guess my, my first question is, or my first kind of thing I want to ask you, is to explain the paper to the people listening, and also why exactly you wanted to research this topic. Cool. Um, yeah, so firstly, thanks so much for, for reading it. Um, I love that, yeah, you found it interesting and um took something away from it so yeah that that makes me really happy um that people are able to kind of find my work find my research and yeah able to enjoy it um, oh i loved it so, yeah thank you <laughs> um so the paper so it's about um disordered eating within um powerlifting so specifically within female powerlifters um, and kind of why I wanted to research this. So as a powerlifter myself involved within that kind of powerlifting subculture, kind of anecdotally, I had heard um, about a lot of people, um, my friends and myself included, who really struggled with weight cutting, not so much the physical aspect of making weight, but more so psychologically. Um, and behaviors and thoughts around food and also um, like how that interfered with um, perceptions of body image as well. Um, so being immersed within that culture, I was super aware that there was a problem with disordered eating, with maladaptive patterns of eating. Um, and I really kind of wanted to explore that. I was doing my master's at the time and um, when it came to uh, deciding what to do for our final year project, like I knew I wanted to do something in this. I um, was really interested specifically um, during my master's or got really interested in qualitative research, which kind of focuses specifically on um, personal experiences um, and meanings around kind of certain um, phenomena. Uh, for participants so I really wanted to kind of um, explore it that way um, and I knew that there was kind of like these two really big bodies of work that would um, 
that had kind of sort of explored something similar. And that was um, research within the female athlete paradox. So kind of having, um, I guess, competing thoughts between, um, you know, possessing a body that aligns with um, societal norms and societal beauty standards, but also having a body of, you know, an athlete and having a body that allowed you to be a successful athlete. So kind of drawing upon that kind of literature and also the literature on um, disordered eating within um, sports um, and particularly how certain kind of sociocultural factors sort of influenced um, disordered eating and body image. So yeah, that's that's sort of how, um, what the paper is about, how I became interested in it and sort of what uh, research field guided, guided my research. Yeah, yeah, and it's it is such an interesting topic, and it's something I'm really passionate about as well. That you know, one of the main reasons I started my own minds is because I I noticed all of these um, you know, kind of hidden issues, these almost like you know, normalized issues within this gym community, and you know, powerlifting is kind of a classic sport within the gym community. It's one of those weird sports that crosses the line between just kind of a gym gym goers and official sports it kind of merges merges the two yeah um and yeah I think I think research like yours is so important for us to start to kind of uncover that and one one aspect of that paper that I found really interesting was that um I can't if you call it the female athlete paradox um mm, that, yeah and I'm sure we'll touch on that as we're kind of as we're going on um, but yeah, it's a really, really interesting paper and I'm, I'm kind of excited to, to hear more of your perspectives of it. So one, one of your um, main findings um, is surrounding the contrasting motivations and expectations of these female powerlifters, um, which you refer to in the name. Um, and you, can you kind of explain what you mean by this? And I know the kind of the title of your actual paper is actually you, you tell us what the title of the paper is and it's kind of leading on to um, what we were just saying. Yeah, so the um, title of the paper is Weight on the Bar versus Weight on the Scale, um, Qualitative Exploration of Sword Eating and Female Powerlifting. Um, so yeah, that beginning bit, kind of weight on the bar versus weight on the scale. So I really wanted to kind of um, highlight um, sort of these contrasting views and kind of the main purpose of powerlifting, which is adding weight to the bar and getting stronger. That is the main goal of powerlifting in essence, uh, when you really kind of like break it down. But then within powerlifting, you have this element of being in a weight class, having to weigh yourself. And because of that like focus, um, that's where a lot of kind of these like weight making behaviors um, would sort of lead into um, disordered eating um, and kind of increase its severity and for a lot of participants I interviewed through their involvement in powerlifting unfortunately developed um, really kind of um, impactful severe problems um, with food um, and yeah clinical eating disorders for some um, unfortunately so yeah that title kind of highlights um, the sort of contrast between those two things and I think with powerlifting specifically it's seen as well when I started AUA it was seen as quite um male dominant I'd say um and I think when I started as well like problems around uh kind of uh 
the psychological impact of making weight wasn't really spoken about, um, even though it is uh, a weight making sport. And, you know, rich uh, research tells us that these kind of weight making uh, weight class sports are sort of more at risk of disordered eating. So mm. I really wanted a title and I really wanted to kind of like make the point that, you know, even though it is this sport that it traditionally is male dominated and the characteristics you need to possess in order to be good at this sport, like you need to be strong, you need to be resilient. They kind of, you know, you can still um, develop um, disordered eating through mm. kind of being involved in, in the sport, uh, despite possessing these characteristics that make you good at the sport. Yeah. If that yeah. makes sense. No, yeah, it does. Um, do you think, because it's, it's, it's something that's really interesting about the paper is is the fact that it's on women in particular. Do you, do you think women are, within this sport particularly, more likely to be developing these disorders, do you think, or compared to men? Or do you think it's... Um, I don't necessarily think so. Um, I think, I mean, some of my participants made um, some kind of references towards the fact that it is quite male dominated and the characteristics you need to possess are quite, you know, traditionally quite masculine. Um, and that a lot of males in their perspective, in, in their opinion, in my participants' opinion, um, felt like when they saw males cut weight, it was very kind of robotic. It was, it was physical. There wasn't that kind of like mental aspect of it but I don't necessarily think that means that men don't experience um, disordered eating within weight class sports um, I think that you know men in general regardless of of if they're an athlete or not or if they're in a weight class sport or not or a traditional high-risk sport um, can develop disordered eating and eating disorders um, I don't think it is um you know, gendered or one gender uh, experiences it more than the other. I think maybe women are more likely to um, speak about it. Um, and that for me was kind of the rationale to exploring females at the time. Not only did I want to explore this kind of um, like sort of uh, feminine body ideals, but also I knew that the likelihood of you know, female participants or female powerlifters coming forward about um, disordered eating and uh, mental concerns um, and, yeah, mental uh, experiences with making weight, um, that they would be more likely uh, over males to come forward and participate in my study. Um, it would, of course, be like so interesting to explore this in a male population because, um, you know, they experience it or males experience it so, so differently. Um, so even after I kind of um, published my research and even like pre-publication as well, I had um, kind of a few powerlifters, like male powerlifters who um, sent me an email or sent me a message over Instagram and had kind of said like, oh, I've experienced like, 
you know, even though you included female participants, just reading what they've been through, I've experienced that specifically. I've experienced those thoughts around food and those problems with making weight. So yeah, to answer your question, I don't think it um, is only females. I think males experience it too, but the way it's experienced is different and those processes are different. Yeah, and that, that's what really interests interests me. And I, I don't, you might not might not know this, but I have personally had uh, I have an eating disorder, and I've experienced with like muscularity oriented um, mm, disordered eating yeah. and uh, muscle dysmorphia as well. Um, so I, yeah, I definitely um, understand the kind of male perspective from my experience. And I just, I think what's kind of interesting is is that is that difference in the the social ideal because for for guys the social ideal tends to also be a muscular ideal and kind of goes with the powerlifting physique um whereas yeah. for for women you've you've got that powerlifting ideal which is going to be more muscular but then the social ideal doesn't necessarily stick to that so yeah that's kind of that's why i was mm-hmm. thinking i wonder if it's like i'm not trying to say it's it's um easy for guys because personal experience i know it isn't but um I wonder if there is, yeah, just kind of a difference in the way that it manifests in women compared to men. I suppose we won't know until someone does the same study on men. Exactly. And I think as well, like you said, um, those ideals or those kind of like, you know, physical um, traits or or, or, um, the way a body would look in powerlifting is more aligned to this like masculine body ideal over a female. But you know, if you have a male who's striving to attain that through trying to eat lots and lots or still having a distorted way of thinking about food, but going the other way, like trying to increase his weight or trying to go into a weight class above, right, that still can create disordered eating. And mm. yeah, it might not be to do with like cutting weight to get into a lower weight class, but it's still kind of causing or still they might experience like these sort of maladaptive uh, thoughts um, Mm. and attitudes around food. And, you know, it might manifest in certain kind of behaviors that are, um, you know, termed disordered eating. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of, as you're saying that it's, I remember it, I think I remember it's from your paper. um, Some of the women were talking about the idea that they do the, the kind of cut and bulk diet. And sometimes when they do like a severe cut, they or you know for people who don't know a severe like restriction of your food to like lower calories to try and lose weight then when you finished you'd have like a reward where you'd have this like huge binge day where you can and people tend to call them cheat meals or cheat days um, and they're showing quite a lot in yeah. men as well um so yeah it is it is, it is really interesting yeah. that there is not just um the restriction but there's also this um it was it's, it's obviously not kind of uh, we're not trying to diagnose people here but it's almost like bulimia kind of like tendencies of um having to you know restrict a lot and and then purge and then kind of purging it and um, through exercise or whatever and then also kind of almost like again not diagnosing it but almost like binge eating disorder where you restrict for a bit and then you binge and then you feel bad about yourself and like those kind yeah. of cycles yeah there definitely was that kind of pattern with those like phases sort of on season versus off season and that being characterized by a restriction phase so self-starvation um versus you know an off season 
where participants developed kind of binge eating and would just eat uncontrollably um, their entire off season. So then when it came to cutting weight, there are even a heavier body weight than when they ever started cutting weight, right? And that just made it harder and harder to cut weight every single time that would just exacerbate these problems and exacerbate this cycle as well and just um, make kind of these these behaviors more severe and these um, thoughts more more severe. Mm, yeah, and I know we've, we've only kind of I think we've only done question two, but I've got another thing I want to I want to talk about. Um, but it's also yeah. it's reminded me of um, you know there's all, there's kind of that culture in because I was into like bodybuilding, um, but yeah. you know, again there's still that kind of severe restriction of diet for for shows and stuff. Um, and you know there's that weird kind of culture that going through agony for a, a diet like the, the less you can eat the more you feel shit like the shit you feel during this diet the more kind of like rep you get for it like it's like a it's yeah. kind of like a it's a like show it's been successful yeah mm. and that's that's yeah. like that yes. again just feels like wrong um and it's another one of those things that kind of makes me think there's there's issues that need to be uncovered i think that's like so ingrained in like bodybuilding culture and like on social media as well like on kind of um certain like instagram posts i see that come up on my explore page i think it normalizes certain things that shouldn't be normalized and like glamorizes like struggle or the grind i think in like this society anyway like grinding is like you know like working hard working so hard until you like nearly die is glamorized and much like within you know bodybuilding like going to those extremes is just normalized seen part as part of the sport and um yeah I don't know if I agree with that yeah the, the, I think um at least from from the male perspective uh, I, I recently had um Dr Yain Kranswick on who's a um, like muscularity researcher and we, he in his research he's talking about kind of the, the the way that masculinity ties in with with men who experience kind of muscle dysmorphia and, and um, that kind of stuff. And um, he was talking about the fact that um, you know for some people part of that masculinity is ability to work hard and ability to kind of push yourself and and that kind of gives you that capital that like masculine capital that's going to make you feel good about yourself. And for me, I think that's a huge part of mine is that idea that like I was never the strongest or the biggest, but I worked hard and everyone I trained with. Mm. And that was that was what I prided myself on. And I can see how for my personal experience, that's transitioned now that I'm moving away from the gym and I'm now trying to find self-worth in other things. I'm now finding that in my work rate in like with my minds and with work and yeah. like, I want to be doing so much stuff. Uh, because that's yeah. Think, yeah it's transitioning across and that's the thing like uh, that's okay you know like channeling that into something productive and something healthy like that's great but a lot of athletes kind of like think that way but it just turns into just such unhealthy like ways of thinking and just creates like a lot of mental health problems um there's like you know a lot of research coming out at the moment like especially now that like mental health is such a booming kind of topic like in research like outside of research that 
cultures within sport like really need to change in order to kind of accommodate for this um, because it's just creating like mental health problems, mental illnesses in these athletic populations. Um, mm. Whereas like if that hard work was maybe channeled into something else, something a bit healthier, um you might kind of see more sort of like positive mental health in these spaces but yeah. at the moment it's just you don't yeah and and I'm, I'm really like I knew I'd, I knew I'd get excited talking to you but um so I apologize <laughs> I'm not going with the questions here but um I'm just kind of I want to get your opinion on on something or kind of what your thoughts are I don't know if you've read a recent paper by I think her name is Hannah Stoyle or something like that. And I know that um, Russell Denderfield is in it. And they basically looked at um, why um, athletes are kind of pushed toward disordered eating or what are the kind of the things that seem to link people towards it. And one of the things they spoke about was the fact that an athlete's social circle gets so small that everyone around them is doing the disordered practice. Everyone around them's like tracking their exercise and eating and everything. Yeah. So you know, I always I that what I took away from that was it's so much harder than because I used to always just say oh you know you need to um just start doing something else that you enjoy not just exercise but it's so much harder than that because everyone around them is doing the same thing um so yeah. how, my kind of question is how do you think we should get to them like how, how do we kind of you know get into these people and, and get them to explore more things that's so that's so difficult I guess like within elite sport it's like making athletes aware or putting things in place um whereby they're able to get out of these kind of like um you know social circles um but it, it, it is really hard to do I think at a higher level it's obviously about someone you know in a in a federation um maybe encouraging um athletes to sort of like pursue things um outside of their sport as well um just so that they're able to like find um sort of balance as well and that you know that these social spaces they're obviously like dominated by kind of these behaviors and certain dialogues much like everyone in everyday life is right like if you have a group of friends who all believe in the same thing even if initially like you didn't believe in this thing slowly your way of thinking starts to adapt and like the way you speak about things um kind of change in accordance to your environment um so it is I think really really difficult um but yeah I would say at maybe like a higher level of sport there should be like encouragement to kind of pursue other things um kind of in athletes sort of like downtime not surround themselves constantly by sport and people within their sporting circle which of course is really difficult because if all you know is sport like all your friends are going to come from the same sport as you like for myself like most of my friends are are powerlifters um and the thing that helps me is kind of um you know, getting more so into my work, um, trying to like find other hobbies outside of powerlifting that I really enjoy. Um, yeah, so mm. to answer your question, I think it, it's doable, but it's it's difficult. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, 
the best I can come up with or the best I've, I've thought of is we need to kind of look at the affecting the, the, the kind of upper end of the hierarchies within that social mm. circle. So I think exactly. I, I, I personally think people like coaches need to be taught. Yeah. Um, and to, yeah, anyway, we're going, we're, we're, I've gone <laughs> way off. I apologize. I knew this would happen. Um, but the next one, I, re- I really want to um, hear your opinion on this because I think it's really interesting, um, is that some of the women in your study had the perspective that being muscular was empowering and, and they, they felt motivated to kind of push away from that social norm and, and you know, to be kind of you know, different from that and that and feeling good about that, um, which is amazing, obviously. Um, but why do you think that some of the women had this perspective and some didn't? Yeah, that that is quite that is quite interesting. And like, I just want to like preface this by saying like, this is why I really enjoy qualitative research and think it's like so meaningful because you get those kind of like sometimes opposite ends or these just like vastly different experiences because all these women are involved in powerlifting. They've all experienced disordered eating, but all think about like their bodies and social norms so differently. Um, And this kind of study and and qualitative research in general, it isn't too sort of like generalized to, um, you know, specific uh, to everyone like statistical studies would do. So I'm glad that you like picked out this finding because this really highlights sort of like the uh, uniqueness um, and these kind of like nuanced accounts really like highlight the sort of importance of qualitative research and what it can really kind of like bring so yeah I'm glad that you've you've pointed that out and I think to answer your question it's difficult like much like disordered eating and eating disorders are multi-causal um I think I think the easiest way to maybe explain that is I think the powerlifters that I ended up interviewing, they're all at different stages of their powerlifting careers. Some were more experienced than others. I think over time when you're involved in the sport and you eventually like, you know, can no longer hold your body back in a particular weight class, you kind of just have to embrace moving up a weight category. Um, And even though that's quite hard at first, like a lot of participants were talking about how at first it was really hard to see their body like go through those changes and felt like they weren't strong enough to be in that higher weight class. um, Eventually, like you kind of start accepting your body more so for what it can do, kind of the longer time you've had to sort of adjust to those changes. there is that kind of like change in perspective uh, surrounding, you know, your body ideal, which at, at one point was so important, but now it's less so, and you're able to kind of like focus your mind more so on performing and getting the best total possible, regardless of what your body looks like. Mm. But I think for other powerlifters who maybe haven't made that sort of transition yet, or haven't gone through those sort of like processes of, of thinking um maybe they're more so um kind of not able to see their body for what it can do and instead are still really really focused on how it looks because they haven't had that time to adapt to those um 
changes and, mm. and gaining weight and seeing what it can actually do for your performance. Because for me personally, when, when I started in powerlifting, I was in a weight class that was far too low for, for me to be in, um, considering my height. And before I started gaining weight to go into a higher weight class, I was very caught up in how my body looked and needing it to look a particular way and having it aligned to, you know, this, this kind of uh, uh, society's beauty standards or how they, you know, prefer to female bodies to look like. Um, so I was really kind of trying to hold myself back in that weight category because I hadn't seen what gaining weight and you know actually putting on size and muscle could do for me I never really went beyond you know being focused on this this social body norm so that I think is is the best way I can answer your question and I hope that the way I've answered it makes sense it does and I think I think <clears throat> I think in kind of in layman's terms I feel like it's almost although someone's talking about their their body when they you know when people feel empowered about it um although they are talking about their body it's almost as if they're describing it's not really about their the way their body looks it's about what it can do so although they're saying oh yeah mm -hmm. I love I love that I'm like getting bigger and more muscular and stuff but really what they're describing is I love that I'm getting more powerful and more strong and I'm able yeah. to do do more yeah um, activities with it and uh, that sounded like a stepbrothers um, quote I didn't mean it to um, <laughs> it's so much more room for activity um <laughs> uh, but no yeah so it's almost like a yeah it transitions from although they are talking about their body it means more than just the body metaphorically it's more than just yeah. the body now yeah it's like function can do yeah. things that makes you way better at the sport than you ever had been mm. Yeah, I think that, that kind of highlights, um, I think it's really important you know, for people who are kind of going through, obviously I'm not a clinical psychologist, but you know, for my, from my experience and from people I've spoken to, a lot of the times when people talk about having issues with exercise and with food, um, often a really important part is transitioning from exercising to, to affect your body and towards exercising to, you know, for strength or for some other goal um because it, it, i think it'll help lower that kind of weight and shape concern that we know is linked to yeah to those kind of and issues. i think that process takes time there is this like idea i think that dominates now which is like strong over skinny right but i think like it's not so easy at first like it takes time to kind of like see those changes in your performance and what you're doing um especially for me like when I came into powerlifting originally I thought oh because I'm getting into powerlifting and the goal is to be strong that immediately it will cure my eating disorder and it's meant to be this like big savior of mine and in reality like it didn't work that way um it took time like gaining weight and actually feeling empowered by m my performance and, and getting stronger um so yeah, I think I think it it definitely takes time that kind of transition and going from you know being held back or holding your body back to align with these uh, female social norms to actually feeling empowered by by your body. I re I'm really glad you you said that um, because that is really important. I think it's something 
often when I have these discussions, it's something I kind of skip over because I know it, but I forget that sometimes listeners might not be aware of that, that it is uh, every the recovery to anything is a, um, it's a process. process. You're going to, yeah, you're going to, you're going to yeah. cock up sometimes. You're going to have, you know, you're going to mess up on days and you're going to have good days and bad days. And that's fine. Um, it's not just, I've started powerlifting now I'm sound. Like there, there is that right. process there. Exactly. And so, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Um, so one thing I also thought was really interesting was the way um, food was described. So the women in your study um, on one side, and I think you mentioned that it was, I think you used the words like contrasting um, views or something like that, where on one side they described food as fuel and as a way of kind of yeah fueling their body. But then on the other side, they had these kind of disordered behaviors around it. Can you describe or kind of explain that a bit more to the, for the listeners? Yeah, I think um, we've kind of like spoken a little bit around, around this. So yeah, so women did see kind of um, food as fuel and it, it allowed them to kind of view foods that were, you know, that are maybe traditionally unhealthy and full of sugar, like, you know, sweets or cookies and just like confectionery like like that as a source of fuel to fuel their session um but also seeing food this way justified a lot of kind of binge eating behaviors as well because binge eating for some participants kind of through the these thoughts of oh well I need to eat all of this food because it's going to fuel my performance um the more I eat the kind of um better my performance would be and then that would kind of start a cycle of kind of um binge eating um because these lifters were still going through uh, uh, this period of self-starvation in their on season in order to make weight um and also it meant that you know the majority of of these lifters diets were you know just junk and it, it wasn't food to actually fuel their performance like whole foods you know it was kind of a, an excuse to eat sugar and and things that maybe that are great to include within a diet in in a balanced way um but it almost excused um yeah the, this disordered eating these kind of on season versus off season self-starvation versus binge eating um that reinforced that cycle yeah and thank thank you um i think yeah i kind of i've not really thought of this through so i might not even agree with what i'm about to say but i almost <laughs> see fuel like the idea of of food as fuel has been it's been kind of um twisted by the gym culture by gym society by whatever mm. you want to call it because it's now it's now it's no longer a like you know we see food as a way to kind of make my body stronger and make my body grow and and you know feel good and that and now it's like I can food is fuel so you need to eat as much as possible because the more fuel the better um or food is fuel so it's only a number and therefore I can restrict it and I don't need to get any enjoyment out of it I shouldn't be getting um you know yeah. I be eating because I want to eat no food is fuel I should be seeing it as only fuel um and that's yeah. that's not the beauty of it the beauty of it being fuel is that you know it it's 
empowering you it's does something yeah allows you to do something yeah that's a good point I like that yeah again I'd, I'm not sure I, I I'll agree with it um by the time we finish the podcast I'll think about it more but yeah it's an interesting thought um so another thing I wanted to talk about um as we're getting uh on in the pod is that the coach because the coach had a really big impact and it's something that I believe in and we touched on it earlier that with that kind of social circle and I think the coach needs to be someone who um, we we target because they're going to have an impact on everyone kind of that they're coaching um, so my question for you is what do you think was the most damaging behavior you were told about a woman's coach and were there any positive behaviors that coaches did yeah I think in terms of the damaging behaviors so yeah it's important to kind of preface that you know a coach because of that that hierarchical position he's in that position of of power that a coach has and coaches are held in such high regards by by their lifters by any athlete you know um that a lot of times an athlete will kind of follow um advice of coaches even if that is um unhealthy or they might know better um because they trust their coach and i think it's such an abuse of power for a coach to um make an athlete or introduce an athlete to um eating in a certain way in this context or in the context of my study because the the kind of damaging behaviors i'd say is putting athletes on very little calories um not allowing them to eat certain food groups like you have to eat you know 50 grams of carbs a day for the next month going into competition if you want to lose those six or seven kilos which is an insane amount for like a female so to put it into perspective like the heaviest weight class of females that I interviewed was a 72 kilo weight class, even cutting five kilos at 72 kilo body weight. That's a big percentage of, of their body weight. And some coaches were encouraging behaviors like this and drastic cuts over really, really short periods of time and unmonitored as well. You can't just give an athlete calories and send them on their way. And, and maybe, if you if you do maybe kind of being open with them and and communicating that you know like I'm here for you if you're unsure about this then then let me know we can talk about this together that there wasn't really any of that from um the participant accounts that I got and there were a lot of um within my interviews I kind of asked for uh recommendations from the athletes themselves on how disordered eating can be alleviated within the sport um, and a lot of them spoke about the role of the coach and the big influence that a coach has and um, allowing kind of open lines of communication um, and allowing their athletes to making athletes feel comfortable enough to come to them when they're not sure about something coaches said or are unsure about implementing a certain thing that a coach is asking of an athlete um so I would say the most damaging behavior is kind of just you know implementing really dangerous unhealthy 
um, things around eating and also um, weight cuts as well. So beyond the eating, there are kind of um, these more sort of more dangerous uh, methods of weight cutting, um, which coaches were getting their athletes to do without any real experience of how to do these things. Just because something has worked for one of your lifters, you can't expect it to work for another one of your lifters. I think, um, I think as well, sorry, to, sorry to, to put off. in, um, but I think it's not even always one of their left lifters. Sometimes it's just uh, someone they watch on YouTube. Themselves. <laughs> Themselves, oh yeah, yeah that's right <laughs> yeah and I think that's so that's so damaging um it's not informed by anything other than a personal bias um and that should not be used to um you know get an athlete to make weight and if they are which is something that um some athletes suggested you know if if they are going to make weight they want it to be sort of uh, guided or supported by their coach and have their coach there every step of the way um so yeah that that's probably kind of the most sort of damaging stuff so unsupervised weight cuts pretty much and uninformed weight cuts um and then positive behaviors so well, yeah, actually, before, before we go like, into positive coaches, i just want to i want to ask you a couple of things about the, the next yeah because um, one thing that i thought when when you were saying that is um, I teach this course for a charity called First Step CD. And one of the things that I talk about in that is REDS or Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. I'm sure, mm. I'm sure you're aware. Um, yeah. And one of the kind of signs for, or one of the kind of warning signs for, for I think it's moderate risk of REDS is a um, loss of five to 10% of your body mass within a month. And what, you're, what that, those coaches were telling them to do was literally that. Um, so, you know, you to some degree, you could be putting your athlete at some form of risk of for, yeah, for red S, which is a really serious thing. And um, we actually, yeah. for people listening, we have a, we have a podcast um, with Rachel Langbean, who I imagine now is Dr. Rachel Langbean, because she was really close to the end of her PhD. Where we talk all about that. So go check that out. Um, but yeah, it's, it is really, um, yeah, it's a really kind of dangerous thing. And and what I mentioned before with the whole YouTube thing, I think that's such a big thing in coaches is they watch a lot of like bodybuilders and powerlifters on, on Instagram or on YouTube and see the way they train and the way they eat and they just get their lifters to do that. Yeah. And that's, that's so, yeah, that's awful. That should yeah. not be done um, in any sport um but that's the thing with with powerlifting it's it's an amateur amateur sport some people don't consider it a sport so you know in certain in the UK anyway in certain federations and at higher up it's like the welfare of the athlete it's not really taken into account just because there isn't the funding there I guess so then it's up to these sort of individual coaches to just a lot of them just aren't informed um, mm. by any sort of evidence. It's all based off their own experience. And like you said, like YouTube videos, right? I've actually been contacted recently by um, Federation within um, powerlifting, um, not in the UK, um, outside of the UK. And they heard me give a talk on um, to power powerlifting 
um, on my research. And they kind of reached out and said that they're putting together an education program around um, disordered eating and the psychology of weight cutting uh, within powerlifting specifically. And even before they had heard my talk, they were kind of thinking about doing this, but then heard me speak and want to kind of um, bring me in into that project, which is great that there are federations around the world that are taking into account the welfare of the athlete and see that as so important. Um, and maybe like the UK will will catch up at some point, but I know that, you know, the, the funding is, is minimal in the UK and, and they just don't have... Uh, the money to regulate um, weight cutting and provide evidence-based information and bringing bring in experts to uh, make coaches, um, officials and athletes aware of these issues and how they can get through them, um, which is a shame, but maybe that will change someday, um, mm. hopefully. Yeah, and that, that sounds amazing, though, the fact that you're getting involved with this federation and um, I'm going to, you obviously don't need to tell me, but I'm going to guess it's either Australia or America because they seem to be the furthest ahead in the muscularity stuff. Um, or it's actually within... a European country. Oh, but... really? Oh, OK. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, that's that's yeah. that's a nice surprise. At least so other countries are doing it as well, which is nice. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, one other thing I wanted to talk about before we go on to the positives. And I also want to make it clear that I'm really like, I get it. Like I've, I've been a coach before for people and um, I, you know, I did my master's in sport and exercise nutrition at Loughborough, which I know you're at Loughborough. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been that person on that side and I understand how difficult it is to know what to do. And it's, it's, you know, it's probably a topic for a completely other podcast, but um, you know, it's, it's, there's so much to traverse to, to traverse. And there's also, it's really scary to accept that this is something that you're responsible for or something that you have to take responsibility for is these kind of things. Mm. It's so much easier to just be like, this is what you do, do that. If you don't do that, then it's not going to work, but it, it is so much more complex than that. But my other thing I wanted to touch on was um, you mentioned how, you know, coaches have this kind of power over their athletes and the fact that they're seen as, you know, they all knowing figures and I personally think that's something that needs to be broken down or something that coaches should try to break down is that kind of godlike figure they have and say, you know, like I, I can cock up as well. Like I might, it might be my problem, but maybe so if something's not working, if you don't like the way I'm doing something, say, and we can look at changing it. Yeah. Having it be kind of that uh, a co-construction or like a, yeah, like being on the same level, um, making athletes feel comfortable coming to you. Um, it's that's so difficult to do when you know you're you're held on this pedestal or they're seen as you know in this position of power or in this position above them. Like I could never possibly challenge my coach because he knows more than me, mm. you know. Yeah, and it is like you say, it is really difficult to kind of how do you think people could break that down? I mean, it's difficult. I think the only the only way to do it is to approach a coach um, with these things. And if your coach gives you any kind of backlash or is really defensive, then fire him and get someone else. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that is kind of the way. Yeah, your you have to, and especially especially in powerlifting, you pay your coach, and you're paying your coach to 
give you this like unhealthy advice you're paying someone to ruin your physical and mental health and yeah. that's yeah it, sh- it shouldn't be like that no I, yeah, I agree with that. I don't think I have anything to add to that I think that kind of sums it up nicely you are yeah you're literally you know, to some extent if if they are if they aren't willing to budge you are paying someone to to negatively affect your physical and mental health so it's something you really need to think about yeah. um so positive behaviors you were going to tell me some of the positive ones yeah, I think that they're obviously I, I don't want to paint the coach to be this like mean figure, because like I've said before, like disordered eating, eating disorders, they are multi-causal. It's I'm not just saying and neither was the paper implying that coaches, you know, have all of this responsibility and should take all of the blame. Definitely shouldn't, because in a lot of cases, like coaches were great. Coaches had these open lines of communication and um you know, had literacy on disordered eating and eating disorders and were really knowledgeable on, you know, uh, weight cutting methods. Um, So the positive behaviours were to do with, you know, a coach encouraging an athlete to um, move up a weight class that they could see were really struggling um, with weight cutting. Um, even kind of when lifters first join the sport, giving them the advice that you shouldn't cut weight for your first competition. Maybe, you know, if you're competitive, if you're going to internationals, then we can see, but for your first competition, see how you get on and giving quite good, encouraging advice and the correct advice, um, I think. And referring to nutritionists for example I think that's great if coaches don't really have a lot of knowledge on nutrition or aren't formally educated in it kind of referring elsewhere or maybe uh, recommending a nutrition coach Um, so I think those were kind of the the positive behaviors and just being like a supportive person in general Mm, yeah yeah I think yeah being able to support your athlete and also knowing your limits is kind of mm. what you've said there. And that, I think that's, that is really important as a coach is, is understanding um, or being able to accept and being able to be honest with your athlete and say, I don't know. That's right. Like coaches don't, or athletes don't expect their coaches to know everything. Um, they really don't. And I don't think like a good coach, like an expert, shouldn't be an expert at everything. They should be an expert in their you know field or their realm and yeah a coach doesn't need to do everything um so I think coaches having that awareness that your athlete doesn't expect you to know you know about programming as well as nutrition as well as rehab for an injury as well as uh making weight like they don't expect you to know all of these things um I think that's that's a really important uh consideration I would almost say that if if I had a coach and they said I don't know I would feel more confident that what they're giving me is is good stuff just because they're they're willing to say that you know this section I don't know anything about but this stuff that I'm giving you I definitely do know and I would would make me feel better rather than someone just being oh yeah yeah, I know I know I know um so Louisa you are the test subject for a new section on the Maya Mice <laughs> podcast. Um, 
people listening at home, let me know what you think of this. But I'm going to give it some context for the first one. I listening to my podcasts and doing podcasts. Um, I think one thing and talking with my fellow podcast friends, one thing that we always talk about is often the conversations go down the line because I ask people to come on because I agree with what they're doing and I like them and I think they're cool. And yeah, so I just want to talk to all, all the everest music going, Oh yeah, that's amazing. You're so amazing. This is incredible. Um, so I thought a good thing to bring in is the new section called the devil's advocate. And I'm going to potentially get some special effects for that moment. So there's like some fire or something. Um, so the rules of the devil's advocate question um, at least currently, are one, I'm not allowed to agree with the tone of the question. Um, and two, I have to feel a little bit uncomfortable when I ask it because it, I don't agree with it. <laughs> so here is the question for the devil's advocate today. Why does it matter? Shouldn't women who powerlift just accept that they have to eat a certain way and look different to the norm? Yeah, so I like that. And um, it's an argument that I've heard um, before. And I think it, it's really it's really interesting um, kind of counterpoint to my research. Um, so I think that at the very highest level of powerlifting at a international level and I think this is the general consensus in powerlifting at the moment is if you're at that level then yes I think that you will have to cut weight to be competitive to be in a certain weight class um, but that doesn't mean that you need to develop disordered eating or a negative body image because all of that stuff can be accompanied by and supported by professionals and people in the know. So, for example, having a kind of weight making um, process, however long it takes, supported by a knowledgeable nutrition, um, kind of an evidence based uh, practitioner and, and research would um, kind of alleviate or prevent um, disordered eating from happening. Um, an athlete having someone that they can go to to talk about things if potential issues come along um, can alleviate disordered eating. Um, so besides that, besides kind of at that international very elite level, um, then I don't think that argument applies because these powerlifters just simply aren't competitive enough to risk their health. And not that you need to be competitive to risk your health, your mental health and your physical health, but just at that higher level, I know that there can be more support for those individuals, but everywhere else below that, I just don't think. And like I said, it is what I've seen the general consensus be at the moment with powerlifting that a lot of weight making behaviors um need, need to happen um for female powerlifters um so yeah that's that's kind of how i would um contest yeah, that point. yeah. um and i agree with you yeah. i do um i i think my personal opinion and i want to hear what you think of this i think 
the more I've spoken about this with with coaches and and things, I I think we have to accept that there is a risk of um, physical and psychological damage happening to, especially on that elite spectrum. Um, mm. And we need to accept that because once we've accepted that, then we can start to come up with ways to help people. It's yeah. when it's when we try, you know, people who say, oh, they should just, we shouldn't bother even looking into this or researching it. Um, the more we understand something, the more we can increase our you know, literacy, the mental health literacy, the better we're going to be at getting people to seek out help and the better we're going to be at actually helping those people. Um, mm. you know, trying to hide it away is just going to keep it going. We need to exactly. highlight it, accept that it's happening, accept that it's shit. Um, you know, but it should it should be that when you decide to become an elite level powerlifter, you are fully aware that there are potential physical and psychological risks. And people will still yeah. do it. It's not like it's going to stop people, but people should be aware of it because then they can start seeing a, a therapist or you know whoever to 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 because they they know it's, yeah. it's potentially going to happen have those support systems in place because they already know that that's what might come with the sport and engaging in uh making weight in in the case of powerlifting yeah 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 fantastic um i personally loved devil's advocate question number one um so i, I <laughs> <laughs> yeah my first experience is great so i'm going to keep at it for now unless i get like a horde of people going stop doing that it's horrible um so louisa um at the end of all of my podcasts i ask every guest three final questions are you ready for the first question yes okay name a person real or fictional who inspires you um i'm gonna say i think my parents my mom and dad um which maybe a lot of your guests have said. I don't know. I don't think so, actually. <laughs> but, oh, okay. Well, that's great. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. They they kind of inspire me to just work hard. Like if you work hard enough, if you commit enough of yourself, a lot of your time um, to achieve something, um, you'll achieve it. And that's why they they inspire me they've instilled uh this kind of work ethic in me and they always inspire me to strive for for more and yeah I really yeah owe them a lot that's lovely I'm kind of picturing both your parents as Shia LaBeouf going just do it <laughs> <laughs> make your dreams come true just do it yeah a version of that <laughs> <laughs> um okay fantastic question two and my personal fave is a phase of your life that you didn't like at the time but looking back you know positives came from it so with this one I think I've kind of touched on it already but it's kind of to do with when I first started uh moving up a weight category in powerlifting or was first contemplating it um it just really made me hate powerlifting because it wasn't that immediate like gratification. I wasn't immediately getting stronger. So I hated that I was like gaining weight um, and my body was looking different. Um, 
so it just made me really hate the sport I just really thought like why am I doing this I just um and now I've just made so much progress since then um in terms of like my expectations from the sport like my, my total my powerlifting total is has shot up so much um from you know five kilos six kilos of body weight and now I think kind of going through that that struggle um and like resenting powerlifting at the time I'm so glad I went through that because now I see powerlifting so differently it's for fun and it's to kind of be a better version of myself and to compete against me um so yeah I'm glad I went through that that and that period of gaining weight and trying to accept myself because uh, it's really made me love this sport mm, I, I thank you for sharing that um again that's my favorite question because I love that you know, it highlights so much of people who are listening and I think you know there, there probably will be I'm not quite sure on the what I'm going to use the title of this um, podcast but it's going to be something along the lines of women disordered eating powerlifting somewhere within that um so I imagine I'm going to have a lot of like female powerlifters here and um you know I'm yeah I, I hope that if you know somebody is listening to this and they are struggling with that and they're considering going up in a weight class and trying to I think the word you use that I I think is so important there is fun try and find the fun in powerlifting um you know maybe they'll be inspired by that story so thank you for thank you for sharing that and a final one is a phrase to live by um I think maybe this is like a little bit corny but like the idea that things don't need to be perfect in order for them to be beautiful or for you to be happy or gain something from it um because like perfection is is just not you can't gain like a balance in life from striving for perfection um so yeah that that's kind of that's several phrases um (laughs) but yeah something around that it just makes me focused on not striving for perfection Mm. no yeah I I really I do I agree massively and I think I think to some some degree even when when we reach perfection it's kind of like for me anyway it's kind of boring like I often feel like I want to get perfection but then when something does just go exactly how I want it to go it's like that's it it's just done then there's no like it's like like anticlimactic Mm, yeah exactly and the problem with it is you're always going to strive for more like you think you've attained perfection or you you know you would have attained perfection but then you're there and you're like okay well this isn't it I need to like I haven't reached perfection yet. Yeah, the goal can be like quite exactly, and that can be quite damaging and unhealthy. Mm, yeah, I agree. So, we are at the end of the podcast, Louisa. How did you find it? Oh, it was really good. Um, I liked your questions. Um, yeah, I've done like a few podcasts now, and um, yeah, they weren't questions um a lot of them that I've had before so yeah thank you so much I really enjoyed doing this
Oh well, I'm glad I'm, I'm somewhat original. That's 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 what yeah. I want on my on my <laughs> sort of on my grave. Uh, it was somewhat original. Uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you very much, Louisa, um, and to everyone listening at home. As always, thank you so much for making it through this podcast, and I hope to see you at the next one. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Here at Maya Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out mayaminds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there. And we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.